Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jonathan Fortney, who is Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's interested in characterizing planets to better understand the, their composition and how they evolve with time. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So um, I want to start with one of your uh, papers from 2018, Characterizing Earth Analogues in Reflected Light, Atmospheric Retrieval Studies for Future Space Telescopes in which you say space-based high-contrast imaging mission concepts for studying rocky exoplanets in reflected light are currently under community study. We developed an inverse modeling framework to estimate the science, uh, the science return of such missions given different instrument design considerations. So, so we have found a lot of exoplanets, the way I understand this, uh, Jonathan, and um, something like 5,000 of them now? Yeah, about 5,000 planets have been found around other stars, yeah. And many of them are rocky planets like, like the Earth. And we, we are trying to get a, a better handle on sort of how, how they are constructed. Is that the idea? Yeah, uh, you know, just because a planet is the same size as the Earth and you know the same mass as the Earth, just because it's a rocky planet, uh, doesn't necessarily mean we know much about its uh, current current atmosphere or how it's changed over time and whether or not it might be able to support life. So, um, going beyond just finding planets, what we're trying to think about now is how to better characterize them, to better find out how how, how hot they are, what their atmospheres are made of. And so that's been a big push in astronomy uh, just, just recently, and that will continue over this next decade. Yeah, so uh, we are interested in rocky planets uh, because there's a slight possibility of life on them, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one driving force. I mean, um, 
that's from the, you know, the origin of life perspective, but also just from the general astrophysics perspective, you know, um, just in the past few years, we've found rocky planets around, around other stars, and we'd like to know uh, how common they are, how similar to the rocky planets they are around, <clears throat> around the sun. So we just don't have a very good general understanding of that class of astrophysical objects, really, at all. Yeah, so of the 5,000 that we found so far, obviously we don't know a lot about them, uh, but are, are a large percentage of them are rocky planets? Um, in terms of the ones that have been, in terms of the ones that have been found, it's probably about a quarter. A um, more con the what's actually a bit more common are planets kind of between the size of Earth and Neptune. So, Neptune and Uranus are about fifteen times the Earth's mass. Earth and Venus are about the same, and so uh, planets in that intermediate size, which which might be actually a bit more like Neptune than the Earth, are are the most common planet yet found. But the rocky planets are about a quarter, I would say. Yeah. So. I guess we sometimes call them sort of super Earths, right? So they're bigger than the Earth, but they're rocky, and they seem to have some characteristics that that appear to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Super Earth is a, is a word people use uh, for yeah a rocky planet that's more massive than the Earth, just because th those were the first then that were found, and those are typically a little bit easier to find than planets that are Earth size. Yeah, and so so this uh, technique that you're using here, could you talk a bit about that? So um, you're look, looking at reflected light to really uh, sort of characterize what the composition might be? Yeah, so the two ways you can think about learning, or there's several, but uh, one common way is you, you could imagine looking at the, the heat, the, the thermal radiation a planet gives off. Uh, another way is to look for the light reflected off of the planet. So uh, that's, of course, very familiar to us. On Earth, we can look up in the sky and see light reflected off of Venus or Jupiter. You know, those are the things we can see. And um, if you can get a spectrum of that light, you can look for the fingerprint for different molecules that might be absorbing uh, in, the, in a planet's atmosphere. So um, you, you talk about W first here. Um, uh, so, so are we in a position to measure this in a systematic way? I mean, do we have enough data <laughs> to look at this? Yeah, and the, the main issue is that it's a really, really daunting technical challenge, right? We can make computer models like we do in my group about what such planets might look like and uh, you know what wavelengths are best to try to see these uh, molecular fingerprints, but. It's a really it's really hard technologically just because a planet like the Earth is about 10 billion times fainter than the sun uh, in terms of visible wavelengths. So you want to be able to build something that can block out that parent star's light and yet see this very faint light of the planet essentially right next to it. And so the, the W first, which has now been renamed um, the, the, the Roman Space Telescope that's going to be launching in. Uh, about five years, that should be able to see planets that are around, we think, um, uh, maybe maybe a billion times fainter than their parent star. So maybe not quite down to the sort of 10 billion we need to see uh, potentially planets like the Earth, but it, that would be about a factor of a thousand times better than people can do today. So it would be a, a major technological leap. Yeah, 
Yeah, so it's a billion times fainter than uh, fainter than their star. Um, but can we really get a spectra from that uh, to really make some conclusions? That's a great question. Yeah. So uh, the way the Roman Space Telescope is designed is that it won't really be able to do spectra well. It'll it'll be able to measure the brightness in a few distinct um, wave bands. Um, so. From that, we'll be able to detect the light from some planets, probably mostly a bit bigger planets, maybe more like Neptune-sized planets. Uh, and we'll be able to tell you know, how bright they are, um, whether or not they have, probably if they have clouds in the atmosphere, because clouds tend to be very reflective. But it is going to be difficult to, to determine that sort of molecular composition. But uh, that aspect of the Roman mission is, is really supposed to be a pathfinder for a future more, more, more um, technologically advanced mission. Um, the main aspects of the Roman Space Telescope are other areas of astrophysics. Uh, but that, that, that piece of the equipment called the coronagraph is, is going to be looking for lights uh, from planets around other stars. Yeah, so sort of the first experiment. You talk about a forward model. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so we have audience, you know, who are generally a little bit technical, but not as technical as, 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 uh, as astrophysicists are. But could you talk a bit about forward model? What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the forward model is is if you have a, let's say you have a planet in mind. Let's imagine the planet's atmosphere is made of nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide, let's say. Uh, within the framework of a computer model, you can pick the relative amounts of those molecules. And then you can um, imagine, uh, and then you could pick a, a temperature structure for that atmosphere. So you could pick Earth's temperature structure, where it's kind of temperate down at the surface, it gets colder, then it gets hot again up in the stratosphere, or you could pick some other sort of temperature structure for the atmosphere. And you could pick a surface pressure, and you could pick where you want a cloud layer to be. These are all things you can select in your computer model. And the forward model is really just then calculating for the, all the selections you've made, what uh, that spectrum looks like. It actually does the calculation of uh, light from the parent star hitting that model atmosphere you've created, and then looking at the light that's reflected back. And so the forward model is the computer setup to calculate that spectrum based on the sort of things that you put into the model in terms of the composition, pressure, temperature, and clouds. That's what that forward model is. Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, Jonathan, so, so you, you can um, make a set of assumptions you can simulate based on those assumptions and you get an outcome and you sort of compare that outcome to what you're observing and then go back and do that over and over again. Yeah, so in this particular paper, since we don't really yet have a spectrum of an Earth-like planet around another star, that's what we'd like to do in the future. What we did is we sort of made a few um, model planets that we said, okay, let's imagine this is, this is the true spectrum. Let's imagine this is the real spectrum of a planet around another star. And we, we, added, noi we added noise to that spectrum to make it uh, like, like, like as if you were actually observing it with a space telescope. We added noise to that spectrum. And then what we did is we ran 
many hundreds of thousands or even millions of forward models where we varied all these parameters in terms of temperature, atmospheric composition. And we then tried to assess whether or not we could actually determine um, the parameters of the true spectrum based on all these millions of forward models that we'd run. So to sort of simulate what we would eventually do once we have a real, a real spectrum to try to assess how well we could understand uh, the, the, what this real atmosphere was actually like in terms of the surface pressure, what molecules are in its atmosphere. So it's kind of like a numerical experiment of what we would like to be doing um, in the future once we have the sort of high quality uh, data from us from a, a new space telescope. Yeah, so there could be some AI type techniques here, right? Potentially in the future that uh, we can observe uh, planets in our own solar system, we can get their spectra, and then um, we can get something from outside and, and sort of ask the machine if it can figure out about that what that might be? Is that possible? Yeah, people have done experiments like that. Uh, there are kinds of planets um, that we do have better data for, better spectra for. Those are often called uh, hot Jupiters. Those are big gas giant planets very close to their parent star. And with technology we have already, like from Hubble Space Telescope and also big ground-based telescopes, we can get spectra of those planets and we can see um, just because they're so hot, they're kind of nothing like Jupiter, even though they have similar temperatures, even though they're, they're similar in Jupiter in terms of their mass, they have much hotter atmospheres. So they, they do look very different. And people have done some AI work to try to assess whether or not um, they are, a network like that is better than a human in terms of uh, assessing what molecules we see in the atmosphere. So. Just because there's a relatively small number of planets so far that we have spectra for, it hasn't really been necessary. But looking towards the future, uh, when we will have spectra for a larger number of planets, it, I think it does make sense to sort of uh, think about aspects like that and how AI could, could complement you know, humans in terms of um, trying to assess what these atmospheres are like. Yeah, so, so sort of job security, Jonathan. So humans are still dominant over the machines in, uh, <laughs> in this <laughs> until we get more data. And, you know, it, it varies in, you know, in, in other areas of astrophysics, you know, uh, which are much more advanced than planets, right? There, there can be spectra of a million galaxies or, or 10 million galaxies, and there you don't want to be the person who's trying to classify these 10 million spectra. You want to hand that off to AI or uh, you know, images of hundreds of thousands of galaxies. And there people are really doing really incredible work doing that. Uh, the thing about planets is that we, planets is we just don't yet have the sample size. Um, whereas in other areas of astrophysics, that really has become pretty common in the past five years. Right, right. So, so I want to go into another paper and, and a different topic. Um, so, so this paper, you say, do metal-rich stars make metal-rich planets? New insights on giant planet formation from host star abundances. So you say the relationship between the compositions of giant planets and the host stars is of fundamental interest in understanding planet formation. The solar system giant planets um, are enhanced above solar comp compositions and metals both in their visible atmospheres and bulk compositions. And the key question is whether the metal enrichment of giant exoplanets 
is correlated with that of their host stars. So, so, so when we talk about giant planets in the solar system, I guess we are talking about Jupiter and Saturn. Are those the two, two ones that we think about? Yeah, using this sort of terminology, yeah. So Jupiter and Saturn, and most of their mass is hydrogen and helium, just like just like the sun. So most of their mass is hydrogen and helium, but they have a core that is really metal rich. Mm-hmm. And so, so the puzzle here is, how did they, uh, I don't know much about this, Jonathan, how did they acquire that those metals? Is that the issue? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things we know about Jupiter and Saturn is that although they're they're made out of the same material the sun is made out of, you know, the way we think planets form is that a a star, which is mostly hydrogen helium, has a disk of material material around it. And that disk of material has the exact same composition as the sun itself or the parent star itself. And but but yet we live in a planetary system where none of the planets have the same composition as the sun. Of course, on Earth we don't have we set, we have almost no hydrogen and helium. But even Jupiter and Saturn, which are mostly hydrogen and helium, they actually are much more enriched in these heavier elements than the sun is. And we think that's for two reasons. One is that we think. Um, when this when the planetary system was young, both Jupiter and Saturn, before they even formed, they they there was like a ten Earth mass uh, object that formed at Jupiter's location, and that ten Earth mass thing was a big ball of ice and rock, and that was the proto Jupiter, and the gravity of that proto Jupiter pulled down hundreds of Earth masses of hydrogen and helium down on top of it, and that made the actual Jupiter, which is about 300 Earth masses. And then at the same time, it was looks like it was probably accumulating lots of asteroids and comets that also enriched it on the whole in these heavier elements compared to the sun. And so that's that theory of how giant planets form is called core accretion. And that's the, that's the standard paradigm for how giant planets form. A core forms first and that nucleates this uh, this accretion of gas on top of the planet, and so Jupiter and Saturn are both enriched in these heavier elements, solids compared to the Sun, and so we'd like to know if that's a general outcome of planet formation around other stars. Because in the solar system, we only have a sample size of two, and it's always hard to generalize from a sample size of two. So we'd like to know for around other stars, are these other giant planets enriched in these heavy elements compared to their to their parent stars, just like our our planets are. So, so the, the core forms, you said about 10 Earth masses, and yeah, then yeah. It, it gets the hydrogen and helium on top of it. Do we have any reason to believe uh, clearly Jupiter and Saturn is out there compared to um, Earth and Mars? Do we have any reason to believe uh, out there there is more hydrogen and helium? Why didn't the Earth and, and Mars collect them? Yeah, that's a great question. It's possible Earth and Mars did did accumulate a little bit of hydrogen and helium when they were young, um, but uh, because they're both Earth and Mars are relatively small planets, they they have weaker gravity, so they're not able to hold that hydrogen and helium as well, and they're also closer to the sun, and so they end up being much warmer, and that also leads to um, the hydrogen and helium being warmer and just just 
harder harder to keep trapped uh, by by gravity. And so, um, if Earth did have a hydrogen helium atmosphere at first, people have calculated it probably would only last about ten million years. So it's a pretty in the in the cosmic time scale, pretty pretty short. Um, whereas, uh, but but if if you if you imagine a scenario where where Earth was bigger, let's say if Earth was five or ten Earth masses then um, any hydrogen it accumulated, it might hold on to for, for several billion years. And so it'd be a very different outcome. Yeah, so, so there, there appears to be two factors, right, Jonathan? One is the, one is the temperature, and the other is the, yes. the size of the planet. Yes. So, so do we have some sort of a heuristic that says, you know, if you have sort of an XY diagram that you have to get to this position for a Jupiter-like planet to, to form? I would say we're getting there. Um, most computer models are really only to form, are really only able to form giant planets at like an Earth-like distance and further out. Um, although we do see giant planets closer into their parent star, we think that they didn't form there. We think that they formed further out, more like where Jupiter is, and then their orbit um, changed over time. So yeah, but I think that's 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 a fair statement. I think in terms of temperature, uh, in terms of um, how big your initial core is, and how and how hot your how hot the, how hot it is at that location, um, you can either form a giant planet or not. And so we think it's generally easier to form giant planets further from their parent star, kind of where Jupiter is. Although that's not always where we see giant planets today. So that's a puzzle. So, you know, it's clearly a dynamic system. It's a function of how many planets are there, I would imagine, in the system. All of these things are sort of like um, sucking up hydrogen helium. So, yeah. so if you have something out there that sucks up everything, then you don't have enough to, uh, to really form. So you, you have a review article that just came out, uh, Hot Jupiter's Origin Structure Atmospheres. Um, in which you, you you talk about this hot Jupiters, and these are really puzzling planets, aren't they? And they 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 yeah. have uh, um, they go around their stars in four days or something like that, uh, and, and they're Jupiter-like planets. So uh, so so what is our sort of current conjecture, what they are and how they are formed and how how they got there? Yeah. Um... The, the the most likely, so we, we think these hot Jupiter's planets that are massive gas giants like Jupiter, we think that they probably form uh, further out at, uh, you know, Mars or Jupiter, Saturn-like distances from their parent star. But then um, because of, um, of, 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 of dynamical interactions, if you have multiple planets in a system, or if you have... Um, a star that has another distant star orbiting around it further away, that uh, dynamically you can take that gas giant planet and um, perturb its orbit. So even if it initially formed on a circular orbit, it might uh, have its orbit perturbed by getting pushed around by the gravity or pulled around by the gravity of another planet or another star. It could end up on a very long, elongated orbit where it ends up passing its parent star very closely. And over uh, millions of years, that orbits can be that orbit can decay. And so, instead of being a long, elongated orbit where it passes in closely, 
that orbit gets circularized over time. And so it ends up being a, a small three, four, five-day orbits all the time as that orbit decays over millions of years. And so we think it's, a, it's kind of an odd circumstance. You need a gas giant planet, and you also need some second object in the system that perturbs its orbits. And that allows that giant planet to end up on a strange elongated orbit. And so we now know that only about one in 200 stars has a hot Jupiter. So it's an inherently not very common outcome of planet formation. So that's why we think it's probably kind of an unusual uh, scenario that causes them because they're not particularly common. Do we expect uh, the hot Jupiters to eventually crash into their stars? It's, yes, it depends on how long you wait. So um, there are <laughs> there are systems now where it looks like in the next 10 million years, they would fall onto their parent star, which of course in cosmic timescales is relatively short. But more commonly, it looks like they're stable, um, that they will survive for several more billion years. Um, Eventually, their parent stars will likely expand to become a red giant, and that'll eat the planet then. But um, but most of them are actually on stable orbits, which is a little bit surprising. Hmm. So, so our own Jupiter and Saturn appear to be in stable orbits. Is that sufficiently um, robust for us to reject this planet nine hypothesis? Um. I would say not, just because the idea of this Planet Nine hypothesis is something that's relatively relatively small, um, maybe something like five Earth masses, um, and that would be on an orbit a uh, hundred times further out than Jupiter. And so, um, the, a planet of that size at that distance could definitely perturb cometary orbits, and that's where this best evidence of a potential Planet Nine comes from. But in terms of a planet like that impacting Jupiter and Saturn, it would be it would be very it would be pretty minor. And so yeah. uh, I think I think there's no evidence for such a planet just from Jupiter and Saturn alone. It's more from the peculiar orbits of a, of some collections of comets. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Is it correct to think, Jonathan, that um, so the, the 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 hot Jupiter forms away from the star, it became an elongated orbit, and over time the gravitational pull gets them closer and closer to a circular orbit around the star. Is it similar to sort of an ejection from the system? Is it getting sort of ejected toward the sun? Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, there has to be some sort of um, exchange, right? So one of the initial ideas was that if you form, let's say, two giant planets, if you imagine forming Jupiter and Saturn really close together, perhaps one gets tossed in and becomes the hot Jupiter, and one gets tossed out of the planetary system and floats freely forever. And so that's, that's one mechanism for how you might form a hot Jupiter, and that probably does happen sometimes. The more general mechanism is that the inner one gets tossed in and the outer one doesn't get tossed out, but it's, its orbit just gets perturbed onto an even longer period orbit. So it just, it just kind of hangs out much further away. So we think that's the general idea. So it takes longer for it to really get closer at some point. Is it, uh, is it mathematically always the case that when you get into such an elongated orbit, 
over long periods of time, the gravitational um, pull will will get it closer and closer to the sun, to the star. Yeah, um, that happens because of tides. So um, if if your parent star was like a a rigid object, then then you would then gravity. I mean, the the a lo- an elongated orbit is 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 quite stable. You could stay that orbit for a long time, but because of tides, that's what shrinks the orbit. So, in the Earth Moon system, you know, uh, we 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 our orbit imparts tides on the Moon, and the Moon imparts tides on the Earth. And what happens is that the Moon's orbit from the Sun is actually getting further and further away. The Moon is actually receding from from the Earth. And that's because uh, the Earth spins faster than um, the Moon's orbit. You know, the Moon orbits about once a month. In the hot Jupiter case, it's reversed because um, the planets are orbiting faster than the rotation rate of their star. Mm. And so the reverse happens. Instead of, pu- instead of, instead of the, the Moon getting pushed away, the planet actually gets pulled in. And that's what causes this orbit to decay over time and the planets get closer and closer to its star. Yeah. Is it an analogous situation, Jonathan, uh, the recent Nobel Prize, Andrea Getz and, uh, and others, that, that showed uh, stars going around the supermassive black holes at the center of the Milky Way galaxy? They all seem to have very, very elongated orbits. So could we then assume over time they will all get closer and closer to the black hole? Uh, in some... Yes, yes. I'm not sure what the time scale is for those orbits to decay around the black hole, though. I don't want to speak out of turn. Um, people have spent a lot of time wondering about uh, planet stars that could be disrupted if they come too close to the black hole. So people call those tidal disruption events. And uh, we haven't seen one in our in our own galaxy, but it's likely that those sorts of events do happen when these stellar orbits decay around the central black hole. So it is, it's in some ways it is, it is fairly analogous. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. And so, so one of the things I've always been puzzled about, you know, without knowing anything about it, obviously, <laughs> is uh, so when the hot Jupiter is very close to the, to the star, I would imagine um, the temperature and the pull of the star, it will start to lose mass, wouldn't it? That's a great question, and that that does happen, yeah. So this was something people thought a little bit about when hot Jupiters were first discovered in 1995, but no one had really... People had talked about it, but... Uh, and then someone used the Hubble Space Telescope in 2003. They they stared at this parent star where this where one of the hot Jupiters was orbiting, and they they watched the hot Jupiter pass directly in front of its star. That's called a transit when it blocks out a small amount of the parent star's light. And then they decided to watch the transit only in a wavelength of light where hydrogen absorbs. So they they were looking for hydrogen absorption, and instead of seeing a little a little dip. They saw a huge dip. They saw the planet blocking out like 20% of the star's light. And so they interpreted that as a huge cloud of hydrogen around the planet. And so that's been seen now for um, a few dozen hot Jupiters. So they actually are slowly evaporating over time because it's so hot that their atmospheres are so hot 
that the, the velocity of the of the hydrogen is high and that, that hydrogen can actually leave the planets. And so um, so hot Jupiters are all kind of very slowly evaporating, but it, it's, it's, it's surprisingly slow. So we think hot Jupiters lose about 1% of their mass every, every, every billion years. It's kind of a good rule of thumb. Every billion years, they lose about 1% of their mass. So they're constantly losing mass. Um, and, and so it, it evaporates, and then it gets hit by the, 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 the light from the star, and it gets, kind of gets pushed out into a wind. So that really does happen. It's just slower than you might expect. So this is the most likely scenario then as the, the star dies, goes into a red giant or something, and essentially kills the, kills the planet, right? It's, it's, it's very unlikely that it's going to lose its mass and it gets back into the star somehow. That's right. That's right. So, so the typical hot Jupiter will, 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 uh, will exist for its, whole, for its whole parent star's lifetime. And then when the parent star starts to expand as a red giant, the planet will find itself kind of engulfed by the star. And then it'll be sort of vaporized and mixed into the, and mix. It'll become part of the star. It'll get mixed into it. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk a bit about sort of the composition of, of our Jupiter? So um, you, you talked about hydrogen and helium. You talked about the metallic core. So, so do we have sort of metallic hydrogen on top of the metallic core? So, so just just uh, give um, how big is Jupiter? How many Earths would fit in there? Yeah, so Jupiter's mass is over it's uh, over three hundred times the mass of the Earth, and, and then um, in terms of its its size, it's about ten times Earth's radius. So then in terms of volume, it's about a thousand times Earth's volume. So it's you know tremendously larger object. So you know, about a thousand Earths would fit inside. And, yeah. and and most of its mass, yeah, is this is this material that we don't really have on Earth called liquid metallic hydrogen. And so the the atmosphere you see of Jupiter, that's mostly molecular hydrogen, H2. And it's it's cold at this it's cold at the visible surface of Jupiter. It's like 125 Kelvin. And then as you go down deeper and deeper, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and the pressure gets higher and higher. And if you go down about 10% of the way down into Jupiter, you actually quickly reach um, pressures that are about one million times the atmospheric pressure we feel on Earth right now. So about 10% of the way down, you're already about a million times higher pressure. And, uh, and the temperature is five or 6,000 Kelvin. The temperature is similar to the surface of the sun, actually. Hmm. Um, and, and at that point, hydrogen it can't be a molecule anymore. The pressure is too high. The temperature is too high. And so what happens is the hydrogen molecule um, dissociates, and it also ionizes. So what you get is just a sea of protons and electrons. And the density is really high too. The density is similar to like a glass of water. That's how dense that the proton and electron C is. So people call that a, a, a liquid metal. It's a liquid metallic hydrogen. And that's the, the part of the planet where uh, Jupiter's magnetic field is created. So that's, that's a convective kind of churning, overturning liquid metal that makes up almost all of Jupiter's mass. And that's uh, what most of Jupiter is down deep in its interior, and people have made that in the in the in, in, in the in the in the laboratory, 
you can you can shock a sample of hydrogen for like a, a nanosecond and you can make a sample of liquid metallic hydrogen but then of course it it goes away um, so people have simulated that in the laboratory but it's interesting that jupiter itself is a huge natural reservoir for this stuff so 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 we had a mission over to jupiter uh, was it juno that yeah Ju juno's there right now yeah so was there any plan to uh, sort of uh, drop a probe into the into the planet? Not for that mission, but when the Galileo mission went by, was there in the in the mid to late '90s, they dropped a probe in, uh, and that so there, there was a probe in 1995, and that uh, fell in and measured uh, a lot of details of the composition of Jupiter's atmosphere. Uh, how fast the winds are, uh, how, how the, the temperature at, at the various levels in the atmosphere. The probe can't make it too far down though, just because the the temperatures get too high and the probe itself basically vaporizes. Yeah, so that, that's what I want to ask you. So, uh, if Jupiter's radius is x, uh, 0.1 x into it, uh, you say you will you will see uh, metallic hydrogen. Metallic hydrogen meaning it's solid, is it? No, it's it's a it's a it's a liquid metal. It's more like like, like mercury. It's a liquid metal, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and so if you were to survive the temperatures and you can you know sink deeper and deeper, when do you think you will hit sort of the hard surface on Jupiter? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that the Juno mission has really radically changed our idea of just in the past few years. So people used to imagine that Jupiter had the, had this sort of distinct core. Once you made it all the way down to the center, you would hit this, this 10 Earth mass thing that I talked about, you know, 20 minutes ago, this, this, this remnant core. Um, and one of the things that Juno has suggested, uh, so one of the things that Juno can measure is... Um, is uh, is the is the is the gravity field of the planet? So um, the gravity field tells you about how density varies as a function of depth inside the planet. So that's sort of the the thing that the gravity field tells you about. And uh, what what people have found from interpreting this this Juno data is that Jupiter's core doesn't seem to be distinct. It seems to be uh, what people are using the word dilute or diffuse like the core has been gradually eroded over time. Mm. And so uh, that core, which may have been distinct uh, when the planet first formed, seems like now it's it's been diluted into the overlying hydrogen and helium, maybe because convection has been buffeting it uh, over the past several billion years. And so it seems like that core, although still something like 10 Earth masses is, is kind of distributed over the inner half of the planet. So they're, they're, we, one of the things we don't know is if there's still any remnants, hard uh, core left at, at the very center or whether or not the whole thing has kind of been um, uh, diffused up. Diffused so up that, that's something that, 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 that literally uh, came from the Juno mission just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Is Saturn any different from from Jupiter? Uh, in most ways, it's pretty. It's fairly similar. Um, the Cassini mission was at Saturn, and that's ended uh, about four or five years ago. So that was similar to the Galileo mission from the '90s. 
And that gave us a lot of data about, um, about uh, Saturn. And one of, the, one of the most amazing things that Cassini was able to show us is that um, Saturn's rings actually act like a seismograph. Um, so it, it's hard to sort of put, uh, put your brain around, but um, you know, Saturn's rings have all these gaps, these features in the rings. And most of those gaps in the rings are due to gravitational perturbations due to moons um, that are orbiting around Saturn. That's why there's, there's gaps in the rings. Otherwise, it would be just kind of uniform. But it turns out that there are also features in the rings that are due to um, the planet actually, um, I don't know if vibrating is quite the right word, but like, you know, the, the Earth has earthquakes and that makes the Earth vibrate. And we can use those earthquakes to learn about the interior of the Earth. The sun does that too. That's a field called helioseismology, studying oscillations in the sun. And that tells us about the inside of the sun. And it turns out that Saturn oscillates too. It actually quivers like, um, I don't know, like a bowl of, of jello or something. And um, those very subtle vibrations, actually, we can see the, how that, that, the, that affects the gravity and affects features in Saturn's rings. And people have used those features in Saturn's rings to tell that Saturn's core is also diffuse. Mm. Saturn's core has also eroded over time, which is, um, which is interesting from a connection to Jupiter standpoint, but it's also kind of mind blowing. You can use Saturn's rings to learn something about the interior structure of the planet itself. So is that a general principle, Jonathan, we could use when planets get to this size, you can't really have a stable core that over time it's going to get diffused? I mean, uh, probably. I mean, I, it's hard. It's always hard to know from a, from, a, from a tiny sample size. But given that both Jupiter and Saturn look like they have this sort of diff, eroded, diffuse core, that's fast becoming the new paradigm, I would say, when we think about giant planets, that this core probably seeds their initial formation. But then after time, that core then begins to get um, dredged up over time within the planet. And I would imagine the higher the temperature, the more likely that will happen, right? So the hot Jupiters are probably sort of getting stirred up completely <laughs> inside out. Yeah, yeah. That's very likely to be true. Yeah. 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 So um, in conclusion, Jonathan, so I know that you're doing a lot of work in this area. Uh, we are getting a lot of data. Um, we have found a lot of exoplanets. We found some weird things like hot Jupiters, but you say one in, only one in 200, so they're not that usual. Um, so as you look forward, you know, what sort of your your gut feel conjecture. Uh, do we have a good sort of theory about planet formation or does it have to be uh, modified, improved, changed over time? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, people developed all these ideas about planet formation um, based on looking at our own solar system, right? And that was our only example we could study. And then um, yeah, over the past 25 years, we've seen planetary systems that look nothing like our own planetary system, right? You, you have hot Jupiters, you have super Earths. Um, there's planetary systems where you can find multiple planets all interior, all interior to Mercury's orbit. So like 
inside of Mercury's orbit in our own solar system. We have nothing there. So I would say this is this is the era where people are developing new models for forming planets all the time, all the time. There's papers about this every day. And um, you know, they're comparing to these new data sets from like the Kepler mission and, and other other ways we were finding planets. And so I would say, you know, the, the 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 ideas people are generating today, I think a lot of those ideas will stand the test of time. But I think I couldn't say, you know, there was I couldn't say that there was any one paper published in the past five years that is definitely right and these other ones are definitely wrong. It's just a time of so much upheaval which is really exciting um, that makes it kind of uncertain which of these ideas will, will still be around in you know, 10 or 20 years, I would say. Is it fair to say that the end of one experiment we have in solar system is not really useful um, to, to make theories? <laughs> would you say that is, that's giving us enough information? It depends. So, I mean, it is a sample size of one, but the nice thing about it is that you can get such detailed information about that sample. Um, you know, one of the things we know about the solar system is it looked, looks like we were, our system was sort of polluted by a supernova that exploded when, the, when our system was very young and that, that seeded us with, with, with uh, radioactivity. And so, that's really interesting, and we don't know how commonly that happens. But I, to me, there's a really nice complement of, of studying our own system in extreme detail to figure out a timeline of events in our own solar system. And then you compare that to the exoplanet perspective, where you're never going to have as much detail about any individual system, but you can see trends much more easily because you have a larger sample size. And I think that's really where the understanding comes from is complementing those two points of view. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting time in astrophysics, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for spending time with me, Jonathan. Well, thanks so much for having me. I had a great time and uh, I look forward to, to hearing the podcast and on others coming out from you this summer. Excellent, thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.